This is Front Page. We here at Front Page, we do our best to dig out the truth and bring it to you. Hello, all you freedom-loving people. Welcome to Front Page Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Cameron Goulet. The Biden administration urgently called on the House and Senate to consider approving more aid to Ukraine since the previous amount is running out immediately. But what are the odds that Ukraine can beat Russia quickly? What the West had expected to be the result of the Ukrainian counteroffensive in a day actually took months to realize. Even the mainstream media is starting to sound different. North Dakota Governor Burgum dropped out of the presidential race. He will now decide whether to run for re-election as governor. In the case of President Trump's classified documents, the judge failed to keep all court documents sealed as requested by the prosecutor. So we now know why Jack Smith didn't want President Trump's lawyers to have access to these documents. And after several denials, new bank account records reveal that Joe Biden received payments from one of Hunter Biden's businesses directly. Okay, let's get into it. The Biden administration issued an urgent warning to Congress on Monday that U.S. funding for Ukraine will run out by the end of the year and this will crush Ukraine on the battlefield. In an open letter to the House and Senate leaders, Shalonda Young, the director of the U.S. Office of Management and Budget, noted that by mid-November, all U.S. funding to support the Ukrainian economy had been depleted, except for about 3% of military funding. Young wrote, I want to be clear, without congressional action, by the end of the year, we will run out of resources to procure more weapons and equipment for Ukraine and to provide equipment from U.S. military stocks. There is no magical pot of funding available to meet this moment. We are out of money and nearly out of time. So far, Congress has approved $111 billion in aid to Ukraine, including $67 billion in military procurement funding, $27 billion in economic and civilian assistance, and $10 billion in humanitarian assistance. The Biden administration has also laid out a plan to provide $61 billion in aid to Ukraine, which is part of a $106 billion supplemental package that Biden sent lawmakers in October. But the program has run into difficulties in Congress. Lawmakers have become increasingly skeptical about the scale of aid to Ukraine. Young wrote, if our assistance stops, it will cause significant issues for Ukraine. Ukraine is in need of aid, but so are our troops and so are our borders. Lawmakers have only a few weeks to reach a deal and present it to Biden before the end of the year. If congressional leaders put Ukraine aid on hold until January, a new aid package could run into other problems, such as the battle over government funding that will begin in the new year. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer announced today that Ukrainian President Zelensky will give a classified briefing to U.S. senators via secured video conference. Zelensky will brief U.S. Senators on the state of the war in Ukraine and the need for a new round of military assistance. Conservatives in Europe have also expressed opposition to military aid to Ukraine. Europe's right-wing parties have been buoyed by the victory of the anti-immigrant party for freedom led by Dutch conservative Geert Wilders in the Dutch elections last month. Right-wing leaders from 12 countries across Europe launched their campaign for European Union elections with a conference rally hosted by the hardline 
Identity and Democracy, or ID, group in Florence, Italy on Sunday. Italian Deputy Prime Minister Matteo Salvini, who hosted the conference, said, Our goal is to become at least the third largest party in the European Parliament after the centre-right and the socialists and to become decisive. 17 speakers took the stage on Sunday. They have vowed to reshape the European Union after next year's European Parliament elections, toughening their stance on immigration and softening climate policy to protect jobs and industry. The speakers were united in their criticism of Islam, of illegal migration and political correctness, but they were divided on the war in Ukraine. Tino Trapala, the co-leader of Germany's right-wing AFD party, has spoken out against Western sanctions against Russia, arguing that they have done more damage to the EU economy than to Moscow's economy. Trapala said, Ukraine cannot win this war. The Austrian right-wing party, the FBO, made similar claims. Ukraine's much-anticipated counteroffensive in early June of this year was thwarted. The Russian-Ukraine war has become a long quagmire. A lengthy investigative report in the Washington Post reveals some previously unrevealed inside information. The U.S. and Ukraine blame each other for their losses on miscalculations. The Washington Post interviewed more than 30 Ukrainian, U.S. and European officials. This provided new insights and previously unrevealed details about the high level of behind-the-scenes U.S. involvement in the planning of the counteroffensive and the factors that led to its failure. The investigation also reveals deepening disagreement between Washington and Kiev over counteroffensive tactics. Key factors contributing to the counterattack and its initial loss include Washington misjudged the extent to which the U.S. Army would be able to shift from a long-standing Russian style of warfare to a Western style of fighting in a short period of time. The factors also include U.S. and Ukrainian officials having sharply disagreed on strategy, tactics, and timing. The Pentagon wanted the counteroffensive to begin in mid-April so that Russian forces would not continue to build up the strength of their defenses. The Ukrainian side, however, had other concerns. They insisted that it would not yet be ready because it lacked additional weapons and training. The two sides also had completely different plans for the tactics of the counteroffensive. Another factor that caused the failure of the counteroffensive was that many in Ukraine and the West underestimated Russia's ability to recover from a serious battlefield setback. They underestimated Russia's customary strengths which are manpower, landmines, and no fear of death on a scale and magnitude that is unmatched by any other nation. U.S. intelligence units were actually more pessimistic than U.S. military. They assessed the chances of a successful counteroffensive as only 50-50. After much negotiation, the counteroffensive began on June 7th. The first attack was carried out by the 47th Independent Mechanized Brigade. This brigade was newly formed according to NATO specifications. They were equipped with US-aided M2 Bradley infantry fighting vehicles. Their goal for the first 24 hours was to advance about 15 kilometers, but it actually advanced a total of about 19 kilometers over the next six months. However, 
The counter-offensive kicked off only to find out that doing battle on an actual battlefield was far more difficult than what they had practiced on a flat German training ground. On the fourth day of the counter-offensive, the battlefield was strewn with burned-out American-made Bradley infantry fighting vehicles and with German Leopard 2 vehicles, minesweepers and other Western equipment. The U.S. and Ukrainian forces blamed each other for the miscalculations. The U.S. military concluded that Ukraine lacked basic tactical skills, including the use of ground reconnaissance, in order to understand the density of minefields. The Ukrainian military, on the other hand, argued that the Americans did not seem to appreciate how attack drones and other technologies have changed the battlefield landscape. Overall, Ukraine recovered only about 500 square kilometers of lost territory in 2023 at a cost of thousands of dead and wounded soldiers and billions of dollars in Western military aid. The loss of the counteroffensive has also made Western allies less optimistic of Ukrainian President Zelensky's vow to fight to the bitter end. On Monday, North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum announced his withdrawal from the U.S. presidential campaign. It's fair to say his decision comes as no surprise. Burgum's campaign was considered a long shot from the start. The governor entered the primary with virtually no national name recognition, and his polling results were repeatedly in the single digits, with approval ratings generally not exceeding 1 or 2 percent. Burgum's campaign is largely self-funded. And before entering politics, he was a software entrepreneur. Burgum's company, Great Plains Software, was sold to Microsoft in 2001 for $1.1 billion. He says that he decided to run for president because he cares deeply about every American and that he wants to increase trust in the country's leadership and democracy. He failed to qualify for the third and fourth Republican primary debates. Burgum criticized the Republican National Committee's, the RNC's, presidential debate participation threshold as a clubhouse rule that disenfranchises voters in Iowa and New Hampshire. Moreover, the RNC's requirements have nothing to do with fulfilling presidential duties. Burgum said in a statement, the RNC's mission is to win elections. It's not their mission to reduce competition and restrict fresh ideas by narrowing the field months before the Iowa caucuses or the first in the nation New Hampshire primary. These arbitrary criteria ensure advantages for candidates from major media markets on the coasts versus America's heartland. He said, this effort to nationalize the primary system is unhealthy for the future of the party, especially for a party that proclaims to value leadership from outside of Washington. Burgum has served as governor of North Dakota since 2016. Burgum is eligible to run for a third term as governor. He has until next summer to declare his intentions to run for re-election. While serving as governor, Burgum cut taxes eliminated transgender rights, and he signed a law banning nearly all abortions in the state. During his campaign, Burgum said that he would not sign a national abortion ban. There are six remaining candidates. President Trump, Nikki Haley, Vivek Ramaswamy, Asa Hutchinson, Chris Christie, and Ron DeSantis. On December 4th, Judge Elaine Cannon rejected a motion by special counsel Jack Smith 
to keep some documents hidden from President Trump's defense. President Trump's defense team and Jack Smith's prosecutors have been litigating over what portion of classified materials the defendants are allowed to view. In an order signed on December 4th, Judge Cannon directed a court clerk to unseal multiple documents that Jack Smith's team sought to keep sealed. Cannon added that she was mindful of the strong presumption in favor of public access to judicial documents. The judge's latest decision delivered a win of sorts for the defense. Last month, Jack Smith's lawyers asked Judge Cannon to keep some documents under seal because it is considered highly sensitive classified information. Cannon said that Smith had not provided sufficient justification for his filing because the motions did not contain or otherwise reveal classified information. The document unsealed this time is document entries 223, 224, and 230. The docket entry 230 shows that Smith's team agreed to unseal the documents as requested by the defense. However, the prosecutors insisted on some redactions. It was also revealed in the newly unsealed court filing that prosecutors initially opposed unsealing 223 and 224 because it would have revealed to defense counsel information, albeit unclassified, about the contours of the government's planned CIPA Section 4 motion. This means that it risks giving President Trump's legal team an opportunity to more effectively counter Jack Smith's moves. CIPA Section 4 motions require judges to redact certain information from confidential documents that are transferred to the defense. The CIPA process is divided into seven stages and is sequential. This means that one stage must be completed before moving to the next stage. A key issue is that delays in one stage of the CIPA process can affect the entire trial schedule. This is clearly in favor of President Trump. His lawyers want to postpone the trial until after the 2024 election, while Jack Smith's team is asking for an accelerated timetable. Although Judge Cannon previously denied a defense motion to change the trial date, she said that this would be considered at a scheduling conference on March 1st, 2024. Cannon said that she couldn't ignore the realities of President Trump's several other trial schedules. On December 4th, bank records revealed that Joe Biden received payments from one of Hunter Biden's businesses. The bank records, which were obtained and released by the U.S. House Oversight Committee, expose that Joe Biden received payments starting in September of 2018. Joe Biden signed to receive monthly payments from Owasco PC, which is a company owned by Hunter Biden. The records also show that at least one payment was made directly to Joe Biden. The records were obtained through subpoenas for the personal and business bank accounts of Hunter Biden and James Biden. Representative James Comer, the chairman of the committee, said in a video statement, payments from Hunter's business entity to Joe Biden are now part of a pattern revealing Joe Biden knew about, participated in, and benefited from his family's influence peddling schemes. 
Abby Lowell, one of Hunter's attorneys, claimed that the truth is, Hunter's father helped him when he was struggling financially due to his addiction and could not secure credit to finance a truck. When Hunter was able to, he paid his father back and took over the payments himself. However, Comer said Hunter Biden's legal team and the White House's media allies claim Hunter's corporate entities never made payments directly to Joe Biden. We can officially add this latest talking point to the list of lies. Based on emails from Hunter's laptop, Hunter Biden used Owasco to receive a number of payments, including his monthly payments from Burisma. Hunter Biden often used funds from Owasco for personal expenses, including rent for an apartment. According to investigators, Hunter started Owasco because of his tax problems. Gary Shapley, an IRS whistleblower who investigated Hunter Biden, told Congress earlier this year that Hunter Biden had a history of non-compliance with his taxes and he would often get large sums of money and wouldn't withhold. So Owasco PC, the whole purpose was Eric Schwerin came in to help him with his tax situation so it didn't continue to be a problem in the future. All of his consulting fees and all that type of stuff would go into Owasco. There would be withholding from him. So when he filed his tax returns, they had withholdings to offset the taxes that he owed for that year. According to Hunter Biden's tax returns, Owasco took in millions of dollars in 2017 and millions more in 2018. That included a $1 million payment from Patrick Ho who is a Chinese businessman who has since been imprisoned for bribery and money laundering. Comer said, this wasn't a payment from Hunter Biden's personal account, but an account for his corporation that received payments from China and other shady corners of the world. In fact, federal investigators found that Owasco documents were moved from the company's offices in Washington to a storage unit in Virginia. However, according to Shapley, an effort to obtain a search warrant for the storage unit was stymied by Leslie Wolf, who is a U.S. Department of Justice official. Investigators then turned to another official and thought that they had received clearance. Shapley said, I hang up the phone. An hour later, I find out that Leslie Wolf and the other prosecutors told defense counsel about the storage unit. So it was off the table. So with the new bank account records, it is now becoming very clear what they were trying to hide. Joe Biden got payments directly from one of the family businesses. Okay, this is our podcast for today. Thank you again for listening to Front Page Podcast. For more exclusive in-depth content, please go to frontpageshow.com.